thank you very much for your very kind and generous inter um, introduction. Um, I, I, today, I would, uh, and uh, sorry, I'll go back again. <laughs> and thank you very much for inviting me to speak today. It's a great honor to be here and to be able to uh, give this presentation. Um, I think I will try to speak about 45 minutes. Um, I know that's probably as long as I could manage to keep focused uh, listening to, to uh, um, presentation. And also because I know at least one person in this uh, group would uh, probably disagree with my point of view. So I would love to uh, hear um, comments and, and, and would like to engage with you in uh, discussion later on. So I'll try to uh, not take too much time. Um, what I would like to, uh, my, t my presentation today is titled Post-Industrial Pressures, Political Regime Shifts, and uh, Social Policy Reforms in Japan and Korea. It is true that in um, that 1990s have been often uh, called the, the lost decade for Japan. Um, but in many ways, I see 1990s as a kind of transformative decade, uh, particularly in area of welfare state uh, changes. Next, please. So uh, what I would like to do uh, in this presentation is to really look closely at how post-industrial pressures and political changes particularly during the, during the 1990s in these two countries, have shaped the kind of social policy reforms in Japan and Korea. And here I should mention that um, although I will try to look uh, at the policy field in general, social policy field in general, I will focus particularly on family and gender policies and also reforms in areas of social care. Next, please. What do I mean by post-industrial pressures? I think uh, both Korea and, and Japan have really experienced significant post-industrial changes and pressures um, in the 1990s. Um, by post-industrial, what I mean are two kinds of pressures. One is what I call exogenous pressure. Uh, that is sort of the pressure coming from outside um, uh, that includes uh, pressures such as economic globalization and internationalization. And, and secondly, and I think in a way more importantly, endogenous pressures. And by endogenous pressure, what I mean are uh, two things in particular. One is changes in family and gender relations. And this is particular, this uh, you can see from the data in terms of defamiliarization and shift in normative ideas about marriage and intergenerational contracts. The second area of uh, endogenous pressures is, of course, the demographic shifts. And here, in, in the case of uh, both uh, Japan and Korea, the problem of the demographic aging uh, combined, by, combined with fertility decline has been the greatest uh, pressure points uh, for policy change. Now, I said um, I will look at the uh, post-industrial uh, pressures but I think post-industrial pressure alone are not, is not enough of a story here. Uh, what is, has been also important in both Korea and Japan are the political regime shifts. Um, in Japan, uh, this is particularly often um, sort of pointed out in terms of the end of the LDP dominance in 1993 and the subsequent uh, changes in the political, in, in, in terms of the political structure and also political competition. Uh, in the case of Korea, of course, um, there has been a significant change in, in, in in the uh, political, uh, politi political arena since the democratization period. But uh, of, um, in particular, uh, 
the, the shift from the Kim Yong-sam regime to Kim Dae-jung government in 1998 after the Asian economic crisis has been a crucial turning point in terms of the welfare state um, reforms. Again, in both cases, what the political regime shift have done are basically three uh, things. One is that it really brought about uh, a kind of political uh, uh, de-alignment and de realignment. In other words, the collapse of one political regime uh, then um, sort of forced the politicians to begin to change their positions and begin to jump from one um, party to another, uh, really looking for the most strategic uh, politically strategic position, and then realign the, and the realignment of different political parties uh, within the political competition. And, and within that sort of um, competitive environment, what happens in both countries is the sort of, uh, as it were, the rising currency of the social policy issues. And uh, this is, inter uh, this, this is um, illustrated by the kind of uh, policy reforms that have been taking place. But also the, what the regime shift has uh, done is pro and, uh, and is the creating a, the openings and different openings for civil societies to also engage in policy making process. And I will uh, point out a few examples of that in my talk later on. So um, I guess my, the, in sort of just to um, sort of lay out right away uh, what my main points of the, the, the talk today are, well, basically three things. Uh, one is to show that actually 19, the 1990s was not a lost decade. Uh, it has been an important decade for welfare state expansion or transition uh, in both Japan and Korea. Secondly, I also want to illustrate how structural and political factors both contributed uh, to the policy changes in these countries. And, and I guess ultimately what I want to do is to make an argument for more dynamic explanations of policy changes. In other words, in, if, um, if you're familiar with the welfare state research, for a long time the research on East Asian welfare states have been sort of basically cast uh, or framed in terms of regime typology type of work, which to me is uh, provides very, a good insight, but is ultimately not quite useful because it really is a fro it, it really captures the, 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 the types, but not does not provide very good explanatory um, uh, explanations for the mechanisms of policy changes, and therefore, if you want to look at the why policy changes from one type to another, um, what you need is much more dynamic explanation of, uh, of social policy reforms. So with that, uh, let's start with the uh, exogenous um, uh, post-industrial pressure. Well, first uh, item is, of course, economic globalization. Um, in both countries, uh, there, um, both Japan and Korea, uh, the economic growth has been uh, quite um, um, quite strong throughout the post um, post World War period, and uh, in, in both cases, although that the timing of the the economic growth uh, has been uh, quite different in the two countries, uh, in both countries. Um, Basically, they, uh, both countries employed basically uh, import substitution and export-led industrial strategies uh, to uh, sort of um, uh, to advance their economic um, gains. Now, the, 
Now, in terms of the import substitution policy, of course, it has become increasingly more difficult to uh, sustain, particularly since the mid-1980s, um, uh, uh, particularly after the Washington Consensus. And so, uh, in both countries, uh, since the mid-1980s, there has been increasing pressures from the um, from the external, uh, from the, the larger uh, world communities to uh, begin to harmonize their um, uh, economic policies, uh, basically meaning more, employing much more liberal uh, market um, policies um, for, um, in, in, in terms of the trade. Um, but nevertheless, what I just wanted to show here is that uh, both Korea and Japan have relied significantly on the world international market uh, for their economic growth, and in 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 that sense, the sort of the the the, the increasing globalization of the economy in the two countries have been uh, um, a very important part of the their uh, industrial policies. So, um, in terms of the, the, the development since the 1980s have been, of course, uh, to, in, for both countries have been to, um, is that their, both their economic and social policies have, uh, were affected uh, by pressures uh, to, of course, internationalize market goods and capital and production. And to increase, and and they have been sort of facing increasing pressures and regulations from international agencies such as IMF and WTO, and in the case of of uh, Korea, of course, uh, World Banks as well. Uh, in the case of Japan, um, as probably mo many of you already know, uh, that globalization pressures have led to the uh, relaxation of the external and internal capital controls. And by, by the mid-1990s, um, a large proportion of um, company capital investment have, have actually began to move outside uh, to other parts of East Asia, um, where the labor costs are much lower. Um, and then on the domestic uh, front, uh, there's been uh, increasing privatization of state enterprises, such as national railways, uh, preceded um, under uh, and the uh, ongoing uh, proceeding of the neoliberal economic um, strategies. Now, in the case of Korea, uh, during at least during the Kim Yong Sam regime, which was between 1993 to 1998, um, there was a number of attempts made in area of, of financial uh, labor market and chebol reforms. Uh, but uh, these these reforms toward more liberal uh, labor market strategies actually ended in a quite a fiasco um, in the case of Korea because of, of quite a lot of resistance and oppositions from the, in fact, conservative uh, politicians within the Hanada uh, parties and uh, from, uh, within, from the labor unions as well. And so in the case of Korea, uh, the kind of um, significant labor market transition uh, did not happen until after the uh, after the Asian crisis in 1997, when um, uh, when Korea basically came under the IMF uh, bailout receivership, and in which case they basically had to take the conditions that IMF uh, imposed on uh, the, the main condition being liberalizing the labor market and making it much more um, sort of harmonizing it with the international. Uh, uh, trends. Now, the the second point about exogenous uh, post-industrial pressure, uh, I would not go into great detail, but uh, basically, I think in in, in both countries there has been a significant movement uh, of people and diffusion of policy ideas uh, since the 1980s, um, uh, and and. And, and as well, 
uh, there's been a growing emphasis on sort of applying and, 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 and reaching, uh, setting international standards and international policy and, and re uh, gaining some level of international policy status. Uh, so, for example, uh, international measures such as um, GDI, which is uh, Gender Development Index, or uh, Gender Equality Index, uh, were sort of qu quite well used both by the civil society groups as a way to pressure the, 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 the government to sort of keep, keep up a certain uh, level of international standard, as well as uh, by the uh, external international bodies uh, to sort of push for uh, policy reforms. And so in that sense, uh, uh, both, both Korea and Japan have come under, to some extent, the international scrutiny uh, to sort of keep up with the with, uh, social development side uh, of the, uh, as well as, as um, economic uh, development side. So basically, to sum up, um, in terms of the exogenous uh, pressures, uh, um, I, I would say that both Japan and Korea have been experiencing increasing global and international pressures uh, in the recent decades. And this, in turn, uh, makes policy much more contextualized and much more difficult to maneuver. Okay, so then um, let's now shift to um, the endogenous uh, post-industrial uh, pressures. Now, having said the external uh, exogenous uh, pressures, I think what we also need to, uh, to pay close attention to are the, uh, the endogenous um, uh, domestic uh, uh, changes. And of course, here, one of the first area, the, the, one of the most significant uh, sh shift in, demog uh, in demography, demography is, of course, the Asian population. And of course, in, as this, uh, this table shows, um, both Korea and Japan have been uh, aging at a ra uh, quite rapid pace. Uh, so, so at this point, um, I think uh, Japan, uh, Jap the, the proportion of people over the age of 65 in Japan is probably about double that of Korea, uh, but uh, within the next uh, 20, 30 years, uh, their demographic, well, aging proportion of the elderly people in both countries will begin to look ex very, very similar. The concern here is uh, not only the, the aging process, but the speed of aging, um, particularly for Korea. And of course, um, the, the, the cause of the aging, um, uh, uh, aside from the sort of increasing longevity rate, is the fertility decline. And this is now one of the sort of most pressing concern for the two countries. Um, of course, in the case of Japan, the fertility rate has been declining steadily. Um, uh, but in the case of Korea, uh, uh, the decline has been much sharper and much more rapid. And so if you look at the uh, data of uh, 2003, you could see that, in fact, um, Korean fertility rate in Korea has, is now l even lower than Japan. And, uh, and especially in big cities like uh, Seoul, uh, fertility rate is uh, less than one at the moment. So. Uh, from the Korean perspectives, of course, this kind of uh, fertility decline and the projection of basically very low fertility for the next um, couple of decades means that the, the pace of the, the, the progress of the aging would be extremely rapid. And, and for that reason, uh, there's, a, there's much uh, concern for the Korean government in terms of the readiness of the the, the, the infrastructure and the state uh, uh, provisions for the elderly people. Now, moving on from the uh, demographic shift uh, to 
uh, er, uh, in terms of the family uh, structure, uh, what we see uh, are the in in the bo in both cases uh, sort of process of def what I call defamiliarization. In other words, uh, sort of the the. The, the idea of the traditional families are now increasingly um, uh, have been sort of uh, changed and, and in, the, in the both cases if you compare the data from 1980 and 2000 what you see is a well nuclear family uh, sort of proportion remains more less the same uh, the proportion of three or more generation families in both countries have declined while the single person families uh, proportion of single person families have increased uh, quite a bit and of course the, the much of this increase ha in among the single person family household is the elderly single person family and so if you look uh, particularly in, in the case of Korea, uh, within the last tw 20 years or so, um, there has been sort of more than tripling of the uh, proportion of single-person households. In other words, that, that traditional uh, idea about elderly people living together uh, with their um, adult children uh, no, simply no longer Really exists in 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 these um, yeah, in these country contexts. Now, if we also look at the um, family sort of uh, in terms of the family vulnerability, uh, the the divorce rates uh, in both Japan and Korea have been increasing quite a bit. In the case of Japan, it almost doubled uh, between 1980 and 2002. Uh, in the case of Korea, it actually uh, in increased by about sixfold um, uh, bet between 1980 and, and 2002. Of course, much of the increase in divorce rate in Korea happened shortly after the economic crisis, and a lot most of the studies show that the the divorce immediately after the um, 1997 uh, are largely due to the economic uh, reason, the, the, the economic hardship contributing to family breakdowns and, and uh, marital uh, breakdowns. Uh, but then the, the, the divorce rate continued uh, afterwards, and, and is the projection suggests that it does not seem to decline, even though the economy has actually uh, sort of regained somewhat. And so the, the more recent analysis shows that, well, they, of course, at the first stage, there were economic hardship, but now the, in, the, the divorce has increased, um, the increase in divorce uh, in Korea is could need is also uh, attributed by the changes in the ideas about marriage and ideational shifts and a normalization of the divorce as as an option for bad marriage. So, uh, in that sense, uh, sort of there's been a, a change in in ideational uh, ideas about uh, family, marriage, um, divorce, stability, and so on. And then, uh, just to sort of, uh, because I'm particularly interested in family policy, uh, I also look at uh, things such as um, increase in single parent families. Uh, in the case of, of Japan, uh, it increased um, from about 885,000 to uh, 1.4 million. Uh, in the case of Korea, too, there's been sort of noticeable change, uh, increase in single-parent family. It's not surprising because of the rising divorce rate as well. And then uh, in both countries, there's been um, increase in married women's employment. Uh, it does not show, uh, it does not seem like a lot, but in fact, the increase from 48% to 56% uh, in Japan and 40% to 48% in the case of Korea is quite significant uh, in terms of the um, proportion of women uh, being uh, married women uh, uh, working. Now, I should also mention here uh, and qualify uh, married women's employment because 
because uh, as you probably know most of this, uh, the, these married women uh, working in what is called um, non-standard uh, jobs, which means part-time contract or temporary job, rather than uh, full-time uh, jobs. And in a way, uh, sort of, if we look at the labor market structure or employment structures in these two countries, what you see is a, a sort of increasing informalization of the, the work uh, employment uh, in both Japan and, and Korea, Korea, where basically Lot, greater and greater proportion of people are working uh, in what is called non-standard uh, employment. Um, for example, uh, the, 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 the data show that in the case of Japan, I think um, the proportion of people working in non-standard -standard, uh, employment, and this is for, for both um, general population, not it's not separated by men or women, but um, that proportion has increased from 20, almost 20.9% 20 uh, in 1995 to 30.4% in 2003. So within the last seven years, there's been um, about 10% increase in the non-standard informal um, uh, work workers. Uh, in the case of Korea, it's, it's even worse because Korea never had a very large, uh, not never had very large proportion of people working in standard employment. In other words, standard full-time uh, salary or wage work. Uh, there has always been a very large proportion of people working in uh, non-standard uh, market, but even then it, it increased quite a bit. Uh, so, for example. In 1990, uh, about 45.5% of uh, all wage and salary employee uh, workers were, in fact, working in non-standard jobs. Um, so that's a bit less than half of the, the salary wage workers were in uh, part-time, temporary, or or uh, contract uh, position, um, but by uh, 2000, it had gone up to 52.1%. So that means more than half of the salary wage earners were in fact uh, employed in non-standard uh, employment. So that's really significant. And it also has, it, it, it also, uh, the, the reason I'm pointing this out is that it also has a reason for why uh, the state has to take on greater share of social provision um, uh, later on. Okay, so um, uh, so uh, sort of moving on to uh, basically the sort of so the so the, yeah sort of to um, to it. In, in terms, in, in ref reflection to these structural changes, I guess what hap what uh, we see are also some ideational shifts, uh, such as declining male breadwinner household model. Uh, certainly, in the case of Korea, uh, by 2000, the idea of male breadwinner household model was is impossible uh, because more than half of the wage earners were, were in fact, uh, non-standard workers. Um, and then the idea of the end of the lifetime uh, job security for men uh, also, uh, also uh, sort of began to uh, become mainstreamed. And of course, uh, as we see, there's been greater acceptance of divorce and, and diverse form, family forms. And then sort of in, in both countries, uh, if you look at the um, um, public opinion survey, uh, there's been also a kind of changes in um, decline in familiar support um, uh, for old age, uh, particularly um, amongst the younger people, um, and also uh, the, among the older cohort, uh, sort of um, decline in expectations uh, for uh, support from their uh, children in their old age, and, and then of course um, increasing expectations of state support uh, in old age, uh, shifting uh, from the family, sort of looking at family as potential uh, support in old age to the state as the uh, answer to the old age support. Um, so 
what are the social policy responses to this? Well, in, I think in, in, both, uh, in both cases, I think um, there has been uh, welfare state expansion. Uh, in the case of Japan, uh, uh, what you see is a, a significant expansion in uh, social care, uh, particularly in terms of gold plan, and then later on in, in terms of long-term care insurance scheme. But also, at the same time, uh, a, a push toward more women-friendly and family-friendly policies, such as um, angel plan that was uh, introduced in 1994. Now, here, uh, here I have to make very clear here are the policy responses. Um, now, as to outcome, um, there, there are still gaps uh, between sort of the, the policy expectations and reality. And then uh, thirdly, uh, a fair bit of energy put in area of uh, gender equality. So uh, for example, in 1997, Hashimoto introduces uh, in, uh, implements Council of Gender Equality, and by 1999, a basic law for gender equal society gets um, uh, introduced. Well, in the case, uh, so if we look at the um, sort of uh, public social policy, uh, social expenditure as per percentage of GDP, in, in Japan, what you see is a sort of throughout the 1980s, there's kind of basically very little change in terms of social expenditure. Um, but uh, starting 1990s, it starts sort of going up. Um, I, again, much of this uh, expenditure increase has been attributed to pension and health care, but social welfare portion of the expenditure also increased proportionally along with the um, along with the health and, and pension. If we look in terms of Korea, uh, what we see is this rapid shift uh, from company welfare to state welfare, largely because particularly after the 1997 economic crisis, uh, a lot of chevels actually collapsed. Um, one of the IMF condition is basically let them die. And I think within, within a year, uh, the, the number of chevels uh, dec decreased uh, from something like 12 to six. And so uh, it was a policy that uh, Kim Yong-san has actually tried to implement back in uh, the mid-1990s, uh, got huge resistance from, of course, the business and the, the the politicians, but because of the uh, IMF conditionality, basically they they were allowed to simply uh, sort of die, um, and 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 so with that uh, there has been a, a big shift in in the sort of uh, from the expectation of company welfare uh, to state welfare. Um, the also in in 1998, uh, unemployment insurance gets. Uh, 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 expanded and, and that expansion is quite significant. Um, as well, uh, National Basic Livelihood uh, Security Program, which is the basic welfare uh, and tax-based uh, program, uh, gets uh, developed and, and that provides a, provides a fair bit of, of support uh, for the uh, low-income uh, population. And then again, similarly to uh, Japan, uh, quite a bit of emphasis on uh, gender and family support uh, um, and, and related policies uh, began to appear in the uh, later part of 1990s and early 2000. Uh, of course, one of the biggest uh, sort of surpri uh, surprise or the, the change was the creation of the Ministry of Gender Equality, by the way, just uh, get renamed, uh, reorganized into gender equality and family uh, this uh, last month. Okay, so if you look into table, uh, the next figure, table five, what you see in the case of, of Korea is clearly an ex expansion of social uh, security, social insurance coverage in, in many areas. Um, EI is employment insurance, uh, WCI is workers' comp compensation, uh, PI is pension, 
HA's health uh, insurance, and, and uh, the X is no uh, uncovered, and, um, and circle is covered, and uh, triangle is partial coverage. But what you see is this sort of increasing coverage um, of employment insurance and workers' com compensation insurance uh, to, to fairly small um, size industry, inc and, then, and then by 2000, uh, extending to, uh, partially extending to also daily workers and temporary workers, and in the case of workers' co compensation, uh, to self-employed and un unpaid uh, family workers as well. So in that sense, the, 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 there has been, I think, uh, a clear uh, shift toward universalization of the social insurance uh, in Korea. Uh, the, basically, these four are the, the main uh, uh, social insurance base, uh, for, uh, social security base for uh, Korean welfare states. So if you look at the uh, graph here, again, what you see is a kind of fairly slow uh, increase uh, throughout the 1990s until 1997, and then suddenly a big jump uh, between 1997 and 1999, and then now sort of, uh, sort of plateauing at around 6%. Um, now, this, does not, this figure is OECD uh, figure for um, social expenditure, so it does not include uh, education, uh, of course, company uh, welfare, because if you also add the proportion spent by company welfare, uh, the, the, the figure goes up to about 11%. Um, again, company, the proportion of company welfare is now uh, gradually declining, so um, probably uh, it's, uh, this is more accurate uh, estimate. Okay, so, so now I have talked about sort of structural reasons uh, uh, for uh, change and uh, some of the policy responses in, in these two countries. Uh, what I want to do, to do now is to explain well, why these changes? And um, basically, my argument is that, well, post-industrial factors are not enough um, because even if, you take a, even if you take a look at uh, sort of um, factors such as uh, globalization, there is really no real consensus about the impact of uh, globalization on welfare state. Um, I, there are people who argue that, well, you know, economic globalization will bring about uh, the end of the welfare state because it will be a race down to the bottom. Uh, that race down to the bottom theory has been uh, countered by uh, some, some evidence that shows that, in fact, uh, in many, some countries, uh, in fact, that globalization has created a kind of uh, compensatory uh, behavior uh, for some uh, welfare states. Um, and therefore, it's in fact uh, sort of uh, expanded the welfare state, or at least at the, 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 the least, no change for the welfare states. Um, people like, you know, um, Evelyn Huber and Steve, uh, John Stevens' work, uh, sort of using the large macro data, actually shows that, in fact, in the 1980s and 90s, with increasing globalization, um, many of the uh, coordinated uh, market economies in the West, uh, that's Euro Europe and uh, mainly European countries, um, had, uh, uh, had experienced retrenchments, but in fact, uh, despite those uh, retrenchments, uh, there was no significant um, change in the uh, sort of welfare state system itself. Basically, pension is still safe, um, uh, healthcare is still safe, or partly because of the, the kind of path-dependent structure uh, that uh, Paul Pearson talks about. So uh, to say that globalization or the demographic change or these post-industrial structural factor alone could simply mean that wealth, that will then drive welfare state change or policy reform uh, might be uh, sort of premature. And so what I suggest is, uh, what, is that we need to look at the political dynamics, particularly the domestic political dynamics, and to understand basically 
how then these structural factors then gets translated into policy ideas and, policy, and, and leading into policy changes. So in order to understand that, what we need to do is look at both the sort of top-down uh, sort of imperatives, top-down cha uh, changes from top, and then sort of imperative for changes from the bottom. So top-down, bottom-up kind of uh, approach to um, looking at policy changes. So if we look at uh, Japan, in the case of Japan, I think what we see is a kind of um, sort of political and demographic imperatives coming from the top, and then the societal mobilizations for policy change are coming from the bottom. Uh, in, in terms of the demographic and political imperatives, of course, the, 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 the demographic crisis in Japan was off. Uh, it was then translated um, and, and articulated in terms of the crisis of the family uh, in the 1990s. Um, th those those uh, sort of interpretation uh, ran anywhere from sort of family as a as caring hell to uh, problems of parasite single, which is really about the labor market transition and economic independence of the young co uh, youth uh, youth cohort, and of course the the, the Ministry of Health and Welfare's typical line uh, of the long-term economic burden of aging society. Now, I think the demographic and, and social imperatives. Uh, to uh, these then created a kind of demographic and social imperatives to deal with a low fertility and aging society. Uh, so in a sense, there was a good reason uh, to, uh, from the state's point of view, to push for um, uh, policy changes. Now that's uh, particularly from the bureaucratic uh, bureaucracy's point. Um, but in addition to that, um, there was uh, in, in Japan, as I mentioned, there was, I think, uh, uh, important uh, political regime shift uh, with a decline of LDP dominance, which in turn uh, sort of translated into political, political dealignment and realignment. And then also very critical here is a problem of the political and bureaucratic legitimacy, the kind of many, many, many kinds of sort of illegitimate behaviors by both politicians and bureaucrats in, in receiving um, sort of um, illegal money and, and, and those things also came up at the same time the political regime uh, began to change. And I think what happened was that there was a real need uh, from the, the, the state side or bu bureaucracy side uh, to sort of include civil society groups uh, as a source of both legitimacy and new policy ideas. Um, I interviewed many um, civil society groups uh, about you know, why they think that um, they, they are more engaged in policy making process. And many of them tell me that, well, it's because they need our legitimacy. They need us in order to sort of uh, provide this legitimate front that it is truly uh, uh, democratic and that they're listening to people's voice. But also more importantly is that they need information uh, that they were in fact uh, beginning to sort of uh, the, their policy ideas were beginning to dry up and they needed the, the new policy initiative and policy ideas from the civil society groups. And uh, on the other hand, from the bottom up, uh, from the, the, uh, the, the civil society side, there has been, I think, uh, emergence of civil society activism, uh, which came uh, partly as a result of the decentralization process, the Jiho Bunken uh, process, but also uh, I think there's uh, a sort of a, a result of the maturing of civil society groups as well. And then with uh, legislative changes such as NPO law, it then uh, sort of enabled civil societies to also uh, sort of um, uh, gain greater uh, legal legitimacy uh, for uh, their existence. So I, it, the, the explanation here is both sort of, sort of 
political and, and structural imperative to change, but also civil society uh, sort of uh, um, uh, growth and activism from the bottom up. Um, now, if we look in the case of Korea, and I realize it's almost um, an hour, uh, um, what you see is a fairly similar but, um, uh, but slightly different story. And that is, um, of course, uh, the, the there has been political and economic reforms uh, during the early part of 1990s, but uh, those reforms were, in fact, uh, um, quite unsuccessful because of the, the regional politics and the labor resistance. And um, so it was not until the Asian economic crisis of, oh sorry, of 1997, um, that uh, where the, the sort of, the, uh, uh, a significant political regime shift was um, possible. So with the uh, um, Asian economic crisis, uh, basically, um, the 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 political uh, the, the the political power were trans was transferred from Kim Yong San uh, to um, um, the opposition uh, party uh, led by Kim Dae Jong. In fact, Kim Dae Jong's coalition government was not a very stable government. Uh, it uh, only won uh, it won the Hanada the the old conservative party by only 1.5% of the vote. So it was a very unstable uh, situation, but uh, the, I, the, the, the economic crisis and the IMF conditionality uh, allowed him to sort of develop um, this force through the, the tripartite uh, agreement and, and have both labor and the employers uh, to accept the grand compromise, which uh, meant um, labor market, significant labor market and economic liberalization on the one hand, uh, welfare state, uh, social, uh, uh, social security uh, expansion on the other. Uh, so, um, as I mentioned, um, but uh, so, so there was a political uh, regime shift, but clearly in terms of the um, uh, structural imperatives, uh, what you see uh, was already a, ch a kind of sh changes in uh, sort of employment structure from f more f the, the do uh, sort of reversal of formalization of employment uh, and increasing informalization uh, as a result of the economic decline and the uh, accompanying decline of the company welfareism, and so uh, and and at the same time, uh, from the the society level, uh, there was a significant um, sort of emergence and re um, renewal of the uh, civil society activism. Um, uh, coming from the bottom up. Uh, organizations such as uh, PSPD, which is uh, People's Solidarity for um, um, Participatory Democracy, uh, has be, ha, used to be the main uh, democratic front uh, during the democratization process, uh, shifted its strategy and focus from democracy movement uh, to now uh, uh, social policy issues such as pension and health reform. And then KWAU, uh, Korean Women's Association United, too, uh, sort of again, uh, so decoupled from the democracy movement and began to focus on gender policy issues uh, in the 1990, uh, after the 1997. And of course, in, in terms of the, um, in terms of, of um, in terms of the Kim Dae-jung government, uh, because of the unstable nature of their, his coalition, the only certain support that he could he could garner was the civil society groups, particularly women's groups and the um, uh, large professional civil societies such as PSPD, and so um, and, and so sort of fostering and working with these groups became very crucial for his political survival as well. 
So um, what happened in Korea then is a shift in power from this pro-business kind of interest to what, uh, what people often call the pro-social welfare interest. Um, basically, uh, this was done through institutionalization of new policy interest by means of creating new uh, ministries such as Ministry of Gender or and uh, by creating uh, presidential committees on different policy areas. Um, Kim Dae-jeon is known for creating many, many presidential committees because by pre creating presidential committees to enact policy reforms, they basically bypass the bureau bureaucrats and bureaucracies uh, and be able to bring the, the, the legislative changes uh, from the parliamentary side. So, and then uh, once the the crisis, so economic crisis, was over, then many of these um, sort of institutional frameworks began to uh, bring in the idea of uh, sort of the new social issues, such as the idea of dismantling of the families, the feminization of poverty, and now they're the most talked about issue, which is uh, low fertility and rapid aging society. So um, just two more uh, slides. Um, if, we, if we look at the conclusion, uh, could, we, um, could we just go, which one's, is there a slide before that? Oh, no, if we look at the conclusion uh, from this, what we could draw is that 1990s was, I think, a transitional point in Japanese and Korean welfare states. Uh, it's, it's transitionary point uh, because one, that there, I think there was a clear change or shift in understanding of social issues and what, the, 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 what are the state role vis-a-vis -vis these social issues. And, and so uh, it, it, it's, it's a transition, not simply in terms of the welfare state structures, but in terms of the, the, welfare, is, uh, the, the welfare issues and what the state need to do. I think it was also a transitional point because um, you, the, 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 these changes, uh, there were, I think, visible uh, changes in domestic political dynamics that were also crucial uh, to these, to facilitating these policy changes. Now, finally, in terms of the outcomes, I think what we see are both sort of similar and different outcomes. Similar in terms of welfare state expansion uh, in both countries, um, with greater emphasis on social services and social care. Um, the, the more uh, emphasis on the ideas about gender equality and clearly shift from company welfareism to state welfare. But I think in a way different in, in the two countries because of the timings and, and levels of welfare state development. Clearly in the case of Korea, what you see is an attempt, well, well much more broad-based welfare state expansion in terms of introducing labor, uh, new labor laws, um, uh, unif universalizing healthcare and pension and so on, happening simultaneously uh, as other social care, family and gender policies. Whereas in the case of Japan, I think health and pension uh, reforms have been ongoing and in some ways uh, Japan is, uh, has, is much far ahead uh, compared to Korea that way. And, and then finally, clearly difference in political dynamics in the two countries. So with that, um, I just want to end here and thank you for your attention.